Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's the end of September 1900, and already the spring rains have come to parts of southern Africa. It's a time when the dull, dusty winter air is cleared by these first thunderstorms, which flush the atmosphere clear, and people awaken after a night of flashing lightning and growling thunder to blue skies and moderate temperatures. Generally, the wind falls at this time of year. Birds return from the winter vacation. The felt turns from a khaki and mustard brown or yellow to a tinge of green. The planting begins. Farmers have a new glint in their eye as hope and climate prevail positively. It's also the phase in the war where General Louis Boerter has left the eastern Transvaal with over 2,000 men in order to begin the guerrilla campaign, while further to the west, General de Vette and de la Rey are cantering across the spring felt trying to mobilize their new armies. The freezing Haarfeld changes miraculously into a verdant landscape dotted with wetland, an oasis oozing life, while around these pools both livestock and wildlife fatten once more. While this is happening, over 500 international troops were preparing to leave South Africa after surrendering. More than 100 Irishmen, for example, board a vessel defeated but not cowed. Many of these men will use their military experience in a coming clash with the English back home. In Pretoria, Lord Roberts is also preparing to leave, although he only makes it out of South Africa eventually in January 1901. Before then, he has some important family business to take care of. He must visit the grave of his only son, Freddie, who died at the Battle of Colenso. Living in Pretoria, the Transvaal capital at this time was Dr. James Alexander Kay, who survived the Siege of Ladysmith and continued working for the British Army. I've used his diary throughout this series, and on the 30th of September 1900, he paid a visit to Number 2 General Hospital, east of the capital, then writes... It's a small town in canvas. Streets and avenues are marked out with whitewashed stones. The lines and angles geometrically accurate. The tent pegs were also in line and running parallel to the street. The grounds around the hospital were tidy and clean. All is in order in the British zones in South Africa. Government is functioning. Soldiers are being rehabilitated. Things appear in order. Dr. K is doing an inspection of the hospitals where the veterans lie, including Langman's Hospital, the Welsh Hospital, and finally arrives at the city's General Hospital, where he finds the room of the principal medical officer, Colonel Keogh. Dr. K writes, I went through the General Hospital with him, visiting enteric wards, general medical wards, surgical wards, convalescent wards, officers' wards, mess tents, kitchens, latrines, and the furnace for the destruction of entric debris. He finds the water supply ample and excellent, being carried by iron pipes from an area called the Fountains, just south of the CBD of Pretoria. That's where natural groundwater bubbles to the surface and was tapped by the new city. These days, the fountains are known as a large motorway junction, close to the buildings of the largest university in Africa, known as UNISA, or the University of South Africa. But in 1900, the fountains were characterized by white painted concrete arches. The water flowed through these pipes to the General Hospital, which was full in 1900 and served to highlight just how this war continued to leave casualties in its wake. 600 beds and every one taken, to which we must add the 150 beds of the Welsh Hospital and 150 more at Langmans, bringing to 900 those being treated just in this city alone. 
We heard last week how the hospital ships were arriving in England in September, sometimes with over a thousand casualties aboard. The general election in that country awaits in October, and these casualties will feature as part of the lobbying by those seeking to overturn the Conservative government. Dr. K was shocked in Ladysmith by the poor management of the hospital there, where over 2,000 died from disease. Here in Pretoria, he noted a completely different picture, as the Pretoria hospitals have clean linen three times a week, while the officers were not treated much differently from the enlisted men. The doctor notes in his diary that, The officers' wards differed from the men's only in that they had more space, four beds instead of six, and they had tablecloths and flowers. Unlike Ladysmith, where the officers slept on beds and the really unlucky who ended up in the typhoid wards slept on the floor. The ventilation of these buildings was simple. The sides of the buildings did not touch the roof, which left a space of around a foot, which allows air to cool the buildings naturally. No electric fans, no air conditioning. The shocking treatment of British wounded in Ladysmith and other besieged centres during the war will also feature as a crucial issue in the coming poll, which was known as the car key election of the UK. But right now, cleanliness and honour had apparently been restored to those without limbs. However, things were worsening for our schoolgirl, Frieda Schlossberg, and her family who were living not far to the southeast of Pretoria at a place called Ronostokop, which was under the control of the Boers, so much for Lord Robert's assertion that the Transvaal was now a British dominion. On the same day that Dr. K was doing his hospital rounds, the 30th of September, Frieda was fretting. Her mother was ill and Frieda wrote in her diary that It was now beginning to get hot and mother's health was failing. She was a little lady of very gentle upbringing and the hardships and anxieties of the last year had taken toll of her strength. Word reached the Boer commander Ace of Mrs. Schlossberg's failing health and he paid the family a visit at their Ronostokop house. Not much could be done, but there was other terrifying news that raised the anxiety of the family further. The notorious Commandant Ditch and 300 of his men were on their way, which sent a shiver of fear down their spines. Commandant Ace had warned that there was little control over this group of radicals, who he said would loot everything they found at the family farm, and he warned they should hide anything of value. Frida writes, Ace said yes, Ditch's men are good fighters, but they plunder every place they pass. They had laid waste to every house they came near. The burghers had spoken of the coming of Commandant Ditch for three weeks, at least according to our young narrator, and at last they arrived one Saturday morning. But Commandant Ditch was not amongst them, this feared commander of 300 men. He had been delayed by what was being called other business. So this commander rolled into view with dusty vigour, dragging their three cannon and one maxim gun along behind them. Frieda hid, but describes how The whole commander was so utterly discouraged that they did not have enough pluck to loot us, although they stole as much as they could. They actually departed late that afternoon without looting us, so the much-dreaded commander passed harmlessly. It is in war that truth suffers most. That fearsome rumour spreads and gains traction when men and women are at their most exposed psychologically. There's also a big difference between theft and looting. And for the hundreds of Boers waiting near Ronostokop, there was another piece of news that shook them to their core. 
They had just received a copy of the latest proclamation of Lord Roberts, which featured the terrible news that President Paul Kruger had formally resigned from his position and had left Africa for Europe. We know it was to protect Kruger and he hadn't given up. He was going to try to mobilise support for the Boers in Germany and Holland in particular, but that's not how Lord Roberts saw it. Roberts felt the Boers were utterly defeated and in the proclamation had boasted of the 15,000 prisoners of war who were now incarcerated across the world, including St. Helena, Robben Island off Cape Town, Ceylon, India and the West Indies, amongst others. One of the Boer commanders read the proclamation to the assembled officers and Frieda writes, While Mr. Hollenbrand was reading this, a death-like silence prevailed, every face awestruck. When he finished, some sighed sadly, others shouted, No, it's all lies. Our president has not run away and deserted us. And if Oom Paul would have left for Europe, President Stain of the Orange Free State would have joined him. And now his name is not even mentioned, so it is not true. It was true that Oom Paul was on his way to Europe, and true that there had been no surrender. Furthermore, President Steyn was riding with Louis Butter in the Transvaal and he was determined to return to the Free State to continue the war, which is hardly a sign of surrender. But these men were not fully aware of that yet, although word had begun to filter through the British-controlled lines. Commandant Ace then ordered a Kreisrat, or War Council, which was attended by the much-feared Commandant Ditch, as well as Hollebrand, Duvenacher and a few other field cornets. The council decided the men should prepare for fighting the same week, the plan was to attack British troops stationed in the vicinity. It was clearly an attempt at morale building. It also put pay to Frieda's family hope that their mother could be taken from the area to receive treatment. Their request for a permit to travel was denied and Mrs. Schlossberg was left to suffer in the heat. Hundreds of kilometres to the southwest, the bane of the British in South Africa had plans of his own. General Christian de Wett had not been idle. He'd turned himself into a one-person Boer draft officer and was riding from farm to farm in the Orange Free State, cajoling men in order to shame them into rejoining the war. But he faced an ethical dilemma. Many of these men had sworn an oath of neutrality after they surrendered to the British. General de Wett, a man of honour himself, had to find a way in which he could ensure the men could break their oath and still remain dignified. Not an easy task when you believe your word is your bond. In his book published in 1902 called Three Years War, chapter 20 is entitled The Oath of Neutrality. And here De Wett spends some pages explaining in painful detail why the oath deserved to be broken. And Lord Roberts helped him greatly in that matter by ordering farms to be burnt to the ground. This campaign played into de Wett's hands as he realised that the farm burnings could be used to convince vacillating burghers to continue the battle against the English. He writes, It was now that I conceived the great plan of bringing under arms all the burghers who had laid down their weapons and taken the oath of neutrality and of sending them to operate in every part of the state. He travelled southeast of Heilbronn in the Free State and met the leaders of the Harrismith and Freda burghers, but not without incident. Once again, he had to cross the railway line on the journey, which by now was being heavily guarded. He lost one man killed and three wounded as they galloped across the line between Rodeval and Surfontein. De Vetter managed to get fresh horses on the way and writes, For, although the enemy already had begun to burn our own houses and to carry away our horses, things had not as yet reached such a pitch that the columns spared nothing that came in their way. 
Kitchener's scorched earth policy had yet to begin in earnest, but all Boers had heard the stories of the women and children thrown onto the felt to survive the savage South African climate. All the story required was a little focus. De Wet proceeded to give instructions to Vice Commander-in-Chief Piet Fourie to take under his charge the districts of Bloemfontein, Bethuli, Smithfield, Ruval and Vierpener to try and cajole the men to join the new guerrilla war against the British. He also approached Judge Herzog as the second Vice Commander-in-Chief to carry out the same work in districts around Smith, Philippolis and Jakobstal. But De Wet knew that this would be one of the more difficult tasks he'd asked any second-in-command to carry out throughout the entire war, and he said so in his book. You have to marvel at De Wet's incredibly simple yet brilliant psychological ploy. As we heard with young Frieda, it involved sending word before the arrival of a commando, thus creating time in which your mental faculties stew like a slow cooker. But unlike the fear of Commandant Ditch, in this case it was merely a message of readiness. So De Wet sent out small detachments ahead of the commandos to prepare the burghers mentally and to apply their minds. The messages were simple, things like, Hold yourself in readiness! Or, Um Peter is coming! Um Peter, of course, was Piet Fourie. To other detachments, he ordered them to relay the message that, Be prepared! The Rechter is at hand! The Rechter meant the judge, as in Judge Herzog. But the message is almost biblical and means those receiving these terse words verbally cannot unhear them. Judgment is at hand, brothers. Be righteous. For many days afterwards, as they awaited the commando's arrival, these men sat on their porches, thinking about their honour as men of the folk, stewing while considering the other option. Remain at home and be thought of as a coward. This ploy worked, with De Wet later saying, All went well. General Faree had not long been in his division before he had collected 750 men and had had several skirmishes with the enemy. But how did he reconcile their oaths of neutrality with his godliness and his own word? De Wet himself explains, The reader who has followed me throughout this narrative may very naturally ask here how it could be justifiable for nearly 3,000 burghers to thus take up arms again and break their oath of neutrality. I will answer this question by another. Who first broke the terms of this oath, the burghers or the English military authorities? The military authorities, without any doubt. What other answer can one give? While this is obviously self-serving, there is truth to his claim. However, the British would say the Boers were beaten and therefore really should have given up, and to continue fighting was silly and actually dishonourable in itself. But this shows how far apart both worlds were. The British with their alienating European mode of diplomacy and the Boers with their intrinsic Euro-African-based mode of warfare, where you're only really beaten when you decide you are as an individual. Unfortunately for the British, it also boiled down to how civilians were being treated as the guerrilla war escalated, which in turn created militancy. The reality is both sides were breaking their word because that's what happens in war. Nothing is sacred, not even a hand on a Bible or a promise to your family. As De Wet and other scattered generals continued attacking British infrastructure, the British would target homesteads in the vicinity for destruction in turn. If a train was attacked or a railway line bombed, the British would blow up the farms nearby. 
So Boer leaders like De Vette knew a propaganda coup when they saw one, and he writes, Old people who had never stirred one step from their farms were fined hundreds of pounds when the railway or telegraph lines in their neighborhood were wrecked. Instead of protection being given to these burghers, their cattle were taken away from them by the military at prices they would never have thought of accepting, and often by force. He thunders, Yes, and from widows who had not even sons on commando, everything was taken away. So, in his mind, the English had broken the contract, so the burghers were justified in considering themselves no longer bound by the conditions of their oaths. And that's what he told Wim Pitfuri and Judge Herzog to tell those who were hesitant. They would eventually be robbed by the English anyway, so they might as well go back to war. Furthermore, while the non-active Boers rested at home, the British were using their inaction to rob innocent widows. And we must look at one more thing that infuriated the Boers and De Vette in particular. Some of their own folk had decided to become turncoats and to actually fall in and fight with the British. There was a unit called the National Scouts, for example, which featured ex-Boer commandos who were now riding with the British, and in De Vette's view, this was the biggest blow to the oath of neutrality. He believed the British should never have allowed this to happen. By arming men to fight against their own kith and kin and who'd taken an oath of neutrality, the English clearly broke their own rule, so then the Boers were vindicated in doing the same. Later, next year, in 1901, the National Scouts will embitter Christian de Vette even more deeply. You see, his brother Piet de Vette would eventually sign on to this unit and fight for the British against his own blood for the next year. The rift was to be permanent, and there was almost a brawl between the two when they met by chance in the Grand Hotel in the Free State town of Kroenstadt at the end of the war. No, roared de Vette. Taking everything into consideration, no right-minded burger could have acted otherwise than to take his weapon up again, not only in order to be faithful to his duty as a citizen, but also in order not to be branded as a coward, as a man who in the future could never again look anyone in the face. Twelve years after the end of the Anglo-Boer War and Christian de Vett had written these words, he was one of the leaders of the Maritz Rebellion, which broke out in 1914 as the First World War began. Like Irish nationalists, de Vett was totally against South Africa fighting on the side of the British Empire, preferring the Germans. De Vett was eventually defeated at Mushroom Valley in the west of South Africa by General Boerta on the 12th of November 1914 and taken prisoner by a unit under the command of a former Boer colonel called Brits. De Vett hated the British so much that upon being seized, the veteran of the Anglo-Boer War had remarked, Thank God it is not an Englishman who captured me after all. Talk about die hard. Real people like De Vette make fiction appear positively boring. But back to 1900. De Vette is now back on his horse, en route to Heilbronn to meet his new commando in the Orange Free State. We'll let him gallop off into the distance, however, because we must call a halt and water our horses. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, and head over to our website at abwarpodcast.com. 
Thanks for the comments from listeners and a special word of thanks to Rob Cochlin for his great idea to focus at some point on the Boer concept of democracy with its unique form of anarchy. Until next week then, goodbye. Langs die moer, die ze vallen, zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef.